All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're going to continue our look in our uh, study in 1 Peter. And just the thought to kind of get us engaged in the text, the, the idea that character matters. Uh, character matters. Uh, there's a simple definition of character. Character is who you are when no one is looking. Again, character matters. It matters for all sorts of reasons. In fact, we live in a culture where there is a crisis of character. People who say one thing and they do another. We see it in high profile places as people who are responsible for others are caught up in all sorts of controversies and and situations and scandals and they're guilty of living a duplicitous life. And it just makes you wonder, you know, how can you say one thing and, and act another way and 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 really harm the people that you're serving in the greater good? How can you find yourself in those places? We see it personally as those who are close to us begin to reveal the true nature of who they are. You know, the idea that character matters is because every relationship that we have is built on trust. And when that trust is broken, it's a long road back to regain it. Who we are when no one is looking is of great importance because the consequences of broken character is long-standing and far-reaching. Sadly, even in the church, there is a crisis of character. Moments and times when it is revealed that a person really isn't who they say they are. When a trust is broken, when a line is crossed, and ultimately it brings harm to the body of Christ. And as a, as a pastor, as someone who keeps his hand on the pulse of the church today, it, it's been uh, extremely sad and, and it, it causes grieving in my heart to hear about several high-profile leaders, even over the last few years, that have been exposed as living a double life. Men like Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill Church, James McDonald of Harvest Bible Chapel, Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Church, and Ravi Zacharias. It's just tragic to watch these men fall terribly. And not only for their sake, but for the people that are under their charge. For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of those who were influenced by their ministry. Now, I'm not saying that because of their tragic falls that everyone that was under their care is, you know, oh, oh no, they're going to be in a terrible place. If they love Jesus, they have a great shepherd and he cares for his flock. But there is harm that is brought when there are people that are in leadership that have weak character. And it has a huge influence in the lives of those that are influenced by their ministries. Character matters. It matters to God. It matters to God who we are when no one is looking. The danger of living a double life is that what is on the inside will eventually work its way out on the outside. It will. And we've seen it where 
you can think, even after many years of watching someone, think, how can this happen? What is on the inside will eventually find its way on the outside. Jesus spoke of that when he said, you know, it's not what is brought into the man that defiles a man, but it's what's in the heart of man that defiles a man. And it's going to come out. It's going to show itself. And it often shows itself in times of vulnerability. It often shows itself in times of testing and trials when a person of weak character is frayed and, and they're stretched and, and, and they can no longer control what's on the inside. It'll show itself. But church, we have the great promise that the gospel is a transformative truth. It's one that changes us from the inside out. And so as people who love Jesus, and we know that character matters, it's important for us to understand, as Brian reminded us in our worship time, God has provided all the tools that we need for our hearts to be transformed by His grace. We need to stay close to Him. And we need to rest And the power that he provides. Our passage this morning in 1 Peter speaks to the character of the Christian. Peter exhorts us to consider the motivation for holy living. It's really a wonderful progression of thought. Beginning with who we are. And we've been talking about this in our time in 1 Peter. And we've been in 1 Peter longer than just the month of October. Um, Why is that so funny, John? Um, But we we began this thought, right? We are strangers and aliens. We have been uh, a people that that no longer belong to this world. And we are on the pathway to go home, to, to receive the inheritance that Jesus has guaranteed for us. And we we receive it by faith, by faith in Jesus Aliens who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Our identity is one who has a new family. We are not home yet. Peter then exhorted us, as we looked at the last time that we met a few weeks ago, to live holy lives. What we do is to pursue holiness. Because we are children who have a spirit of obedience, as verse 14 reminded us. We are to be holy because God is holy. So we have the who am I, right? Who we are, we're children of God. We've answered the what do I do? What do we do? We live holy lives. And now in these verses, in verses 17 through 21, Peter answers the question, why? Why we do it? What motivates us? To live holy lives. And it's the why question that is the safeguard to protect our character. Because if we don't know why we're doing what we're doing, we're not going to be transformed the way that God wants us to be transformed. We're going to be wrestling with surface level things and comparisons and keeping up and all of those things. But the why The why we live holy lives compels us to consider, God, what am I allowing you to do inside of me? Why do I keep on 
in this relationship with you. Church, I'm going to give you the the whole passage in a sentence, but I want you to stay with me because we're going to unpack it. We live holy lives. This is the why. We live holy lives because God is our Father and will impartially judge us for what we do in this life when we go and meet Him in the next life. That's the motivation. Do you see that? Do you see how this is a safeguard to protect our character? Because if we're living a double life where on the outside we're acting one way, but on the inside we haven't really truly surrendered to to the uh, requirements, the demands of the gospel, that we can't fake God out and we will stand before him and we will have to give an account for who we are. And for the people that I mentioned, and, and I, I mentioned that carefully, that you know, these men who were called by God and, and placed in ministry and were, were servants of the gospel and all those things, that they truly had these moments where they forgot that they're going to stand before a holy God. And they're going to have to give an account. And so I pray that we're challenged and encouraged in the text to, to understand some things that are greatly important to us so that our character will not be compromised. That who we are on the outside is a true reflection of who we are on the inside. And who we are in the, on the inside are people that love Jesus. And they want to pursue Him in holiness. <clears throat> Church, we're going to talk about this in a second, but you need to understand that even now as a believer you will give an account to God for how you live your life. You will. If your motivation is just to do enough, enough good, which, boy, isn't that a tireless question? Because really, how good is good enough? If your motivation is to keep up with the appearances of Christianity, God's going to hold you accountable to that. So Peter begins this thought of answering the why in verse 17. And he says, if you, you know, two little simple words, but they lead to a profound truth. If you see in the English, we translate or we read this word if, and it seems like if it's a question or a possibility. So if you what? Well, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges. So if it's a possibility, but the reality is in the original writings in the Greek, this word, if is better translated since it is so. And that gives you a whole different shade to what Peter is saying, because it's not a possibility in the sense of maybe, but it is an actuality because it's true. What is true? Well, since you address the Father as one. See, what Peter is calling us to consider and what he is saying to his audience, these pilgrims that are on the path to an eternal home, is that you're living in a fallen world, but you know you have a heavenly Father. Since that is true, since you belong to God's family 
That's what Peter is saying. And, and let's just pause there and just consider that thought, right? Since you address as father, the one, like what a thought that our God is not a distant God. He's not just the creator God. He's not just this far away, unapproachable I know he's there. I'm going to believe in the idea and thought of him kind of God. But that God is our dad. He's our father. That we have been adopted as his children. That we have been brought in to his family. And that we don't just have a space in his house that, you know, might be on the property, but it's not in the official home. Like God says, no, you're going to come in and you're going to dwell with me and I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. That we can relate to him as one who belongs to his family. And for some of you and for some people in the world today, that concept of God as father and belonging to a family can be a a tough thing to work through because we often base our understanding of who God is and and these kind of uh, terms that are thrown around in the relationship based on our earthly experience. And for some of you, when you found out that you belong to God's family and what God has done to bring you in, it, it wasn't just, oh, great, that's good news. It was like it shook you to your core that you could be accepted and loved and brought in and, 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 and placed in this precious family and that God isn't considering you any less of who you are, but that you have great value in his sight as his child and, and, and your eyes and heart were awakened to the glory that, that comes with such a great change, that God is our father, that, that for us, when we read the text of scripture, when we come across these passages, since you address as father, the one, let's just pause and consider the greatness of, of such a truth that we can Think of God as our heavenly father. Paul said it this way in Romans eight fifteen: for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, father. And that word Abba, right? If you if you've been around the scriptures uh, enough, you know that the, that word Abba is an Aramaic word. It's a term that means daddy. It's a it's a family term. It's a term that means closeness and affection, like a little child running to their dad and saying, Daddy, like it's that kind of thought that that God isn't this stoic God that is hands off and he's um, not not comfortable with closeness. Right. Because like some of us grew up in homes where uh, a father or a grandfather, you know, that you may never heard from your dad that he loved you. And then you come to the scriptures and you find out again and again that your heavenly father loves you with a, an amazing, gracious, overflowing kind of love. And you're just like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. But Paul says that we have been given the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters to whom we cry dad and father. 
He said it in Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, and I'll add daughters, uh, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so since we cry out to God as Father, Peter says, uh, we address him. And this word address him, address as uh, as father is in the present tense and it conveys to us a suggested of a continual calling to god for help like we are a needy people we are dependent children that we are people that belong to a family where we understand that all that we need all that we can uh, all that we can ask for all that needs to be provided for us comes from the good hand of our father. And so there is never a time as a child of God when we belong to the family where he's off in his room doing his thing and we're children living on our own and the other and we're just like, you know what? We don't need him today. We are people that are constantly needing the good graces that our heavenly father provides. And so we address him. Peter says, as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Listen, membership in God's family, great privilege that it is, must not lead to the presumption that disobedience will pass unnoticed or undisciplined. Now, you belong to the family. God is your father. But don't think for a second that as an adopted son and daughter that you have Free reign to do whatever you want, however you want, because you belong to him. Peter reminds us in this passage. And he's speaking to sons and daughters, not to the outside sinful world. That the one that we address as father is the one who judges us according to each one's work. Listen, if a person views their acceptance of the gospel as mere hell insurance, then they are not rightly motivated to walk with God in this life. If all Jesus is, is your get out of jail free card. Yeah, I believe in Jesus and I get to go to heaven and that's it. That's not the gospel. Jesus didn't just come to save us for the future, but he saved us to change us now so that we could live for his glory and for his purposes. So what judgment is Peter referring to? Because you might be sitting here thinking, I didn't, I thought the judgment was taken care of. I didn't know I was going to be judged. Someone told me that Jesus died on the cross to pay my penalty, to take my place, to pay for my sins. I didn't know I'd have to face judgment. Well, you're right in that his death paid the eternal penalty. But as a member of his family, you are still accountable to him for how you live your life. And that's part of the family arrangement. You belong to him. You're a part of his family and he holds his children accountable for how they live their lives. Now, the Bible speaks to this judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. He's speaking to believers. And, and this, uh, this judgment is just for believers. Unbelievers not a part of this judgment. 
This judgment is called the judgment seat of Christ. And, and that word seat is the word bema, and it's referred to as the bema seat judgment. And it occurs sometime after Jesus calls us home to be in heaven when he meets us in the air. And we call that the rapture. So there's going to be a point in time Jesus is going to come in the clouds. There's going to be a trumpet and, and all these loud signs that accompany it. And the church is going to be called up to meet Jesus in the clouds. And we're going to be transformed, gloriously transformed. Guess what? We don't go to heaven with these bodies. Amen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 44 years old and I'm ready for a new body. Right? And some of you are thinking, just wait. Just wait a little bit. So... Yeah, that's right. So we go to heaven sometime after that event. We stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We do the church. Those who have been bought with a price. And we will give an account for what we have done in this body, whether good or evil. You might think, OK, so so what is that all about? Well, it's not a judgment of inheritance in the sense of like you can go to heaven or you can't go to heaven you're already there your price has been paid but when you give an account to god for how you've lived your life it will affect the rewards that you receive from god and you might think well what what is that and it's not like God is up in heaven with a sticker chart and every good thing you do, you get, you get one more sticker on the chart. But it means personally you will stand before the Lord and he will judge your works. You think, I thought I was saved by grace. You are. But Ephesians 2.10 says that he has prepared you for works that were prepared long before time began. And we're called to walk in those works. And so you're going to have to give an account for every second of your life, how you lived for Jesus. Some of you right now hearing that you're thinking, hmm, can we have a revival meeting and a prayer service? Right? Because that, I think that puts a new perspective on a lot of things as it concerns how we're conducting ourselves. But then we get those rewards and those rewards in the New Testament are called crowns. And we just give them right back to Jesus because any reward I get for anything that I've done that is good didn't come from this heart. It came from God's spirit living inside of me. So each one of us are going to give an account. Each one will receive the appropriate reward. This is what, it, what many theologians call the family judgment of the church. The father dealing with his beloved children. Now, this Greek word judge that that Peter writes carries the idea or the meaning to judge in order to find something good. It's an evaluation. And, and just so you're not concerned about this, because it's not about this, we're not all going to get to heaven and we're going to stand before movie screens and, and, and our lives are just going to play on the movie screens before everyone. This is a personal judgment that God deals with each one personally. So there's no comparison, there's no worrying, there's, no, there's not going to be any shame. But we're going to have to give an account. And how does God do this? How does he judge his children? He does it impartially. This word literally means without receiving of face. 
What does that mean? It means that his judgment towards us is not determined by the outward appearance. It's not determined by outward posturing. God judges without favoritism. God doesn't just look at the outside of our lives and the things that we do. What does he look at? He looks at our hearts. What's motivating us and why we do what we do. Right. This helps with the why this addresses the character of the person. Why do we do what we do? And God's going to look right at it, because like if I'm serving in the church and the only reason I'm a pastor is so that I can get brownie points with God. That's a terrible reason to serve God. And he's going to call me out on it. It's like, what are you doing? So we each give an account. So he is the father who impartially judges according to each one's work. And then Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, you might want to underline this this phrase, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth, because this is the imperative of this passage. And what is an imperative? It's the command. Right. We just Paul or Peter just got done telling us be holy as he is holy. And then he walks through and he says, The reason why we live holy lives is because God is our father and we address him as so. And this God judges us. And he does it impartially. And then Peter says, as a result of the call to holiness and a God who will hold you accountable, this is what you should do. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And I just love the last part of that phrase, right? During the time of your stay on earth, like it, it kind of reminds me if you're on vacation and you roll into some kind of resort and, 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 and they welcome you and they say, okay, you're in room number, whatever. And you get all situated and say, enjoy your time with us while you're here. And what Peter is saying to these aliens that are just walking through life to an eternal home, he's like, listen, your stay here is just temporary. It's not forever. Where you're headed, though. That is forever. Your stay on earth should be one where we conduct ourselves in fear during our time here. Now, fear not in. Ah! Thanks for waking up now. You know, it's not like we're looking over our shoulders. You know, we, we go around every corner. It's like, OK, God, what's going to happen now? We conduct ourselves in fear during our time of our stay on earth because fear in a biblical sense is a healthy attitude that there is a God who's going to hold us accountable and we revere him and we love him. And it's the good and proper attitude to have if you're going to grow in maturity as a Christian. Show me a mature Christian and I'll show you a person who has a proper fear of God. Show me a Christian who is struggling in the growth of their faith. And I'll show you a Christian that doubts that they need to live a fearful life. And they're just like, hey, whatever, God will figure it out. Right. The more we walk closer to God. The more we become like him, the more we revere him the more we are in awe of who he is, the more we understand holiness contrasted with sin, the more the scriptures open our hearts 
to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. Now, only you can answer the question of why you do what you do. I can't answer it for you. Your spouse can't answer it for you. Your children can't answer it for you. Your grandchildren, your neighbor, your fellow church member, they can't answer it for you. Only you can answer why you do what you do. But the maturing Christian lives with the motivation that they will one day stand before the Lord who judges his family and they desire to live in such a way to give him all the praise, honor and glory that as God would say, well done, my good and faithful servant, that the child of God would say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done in my life. Now, can you see how this thought can change the way we process how we live our lives, that we will give an account before God. Some of us might need to spend some time thinking through the questions of how do I spend my time? What do I do with my time? What my goals are? What do I want for my life? Where am I headed? What do we want to achieve? What's important to us? It helps us understand the question of how we see ourselves in this world. As one who is to bear the light of the gospel to all around us. To be like Jesus, who Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, that the last Adam, who is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Like, think about that thought. That Jesus is a life-giving spirit, and as his follower, we are called to give life to those around us. We are not called to contribute to the chaos and the brokenness in the world around us. We are called to be salt and light, and we are called to, to fan that flame of the love of Jesus in the world that we live in. And we're going to give an account for how we're doing that. So if you address as the father, one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now we live this way. We live holy lives with the longing to please our God, who is our father, because our lives were purchased with a precious price. That's the motivation of the why. Not only are we going to stand before God and give an account, but listen, who we are as God's child came at the cost of a precious price. Peter says that it's not with silver or gold. Those things are perishable. Now, there's great value today in silver and gold. I hear commercials on it all the time, right? You know, there's like 30 second commercials. Call me now and we'll invest in gold bullion for you. And, you know, like all those kinds of things. And it's like, hey, that's what you got to do if you're going to have a lot in this world. And Peter says that you could have all the gold. You could have all the silver in the world. It does not compare to one drop of the precious blood of Christ that was paid for you. That was given for you. Now, we were redeemed. We were redeemed. 
with the blood of Christ. This concept of redemption would have been a thought that Peter's readers would have been like, yeah, we know what you're talking about, Peter. Because they lived in a Roman Empire in Asia Minor under Rome's control. And during the time that Peter wrote these words, there was upwards of 10 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And if you were a slave in the Roman Empire, there was this concept of, uh, of being redeemed, a slave that could be free, a free slave. And that path of being free was tied into the redemption or the ransom to be set free by paying a price. Peter says that our spiritual redemption was not paid with even the most precious, valuable things. They're not going to last forever. We were redeemed out of a feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers. And that just means a life of sin, right? The old ways where we came from. And that was passed down from generation to generation from Adam in the garden. Peter says sin is futile. It has no success. It only leads to destruction. It is empty. It is not life giving. We were redeemed from that. That's where we came from. And when we were redeemed, we were pulled out of that and we were placed into a new family where God only gives blessing, where he only leads us on paths of righteousness. The gospel really is the great rescue that provides freedom from the dead sinner or for the dead sinner. Our salvation didn't come from perishable means, with the precious, but by the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The imagery is clear in Peter's pen as he writes it. He's referring back to the Passover lamb in Exodus. The lamb that was provided for the nation of Israel, right? That as the families of Israel were in bondage in Egypt, they had to take a lamb and sacrifice it and paint the blood of it over their doorposts. And the death angel passed over their homes and the the firstborn males did not die in the homes. Peter is drawing on that imagery of the physical bondage in Egypt to show us that the death of Christ frees us from the spiritual bondage of sin. Like we are no longer chained to a life of sin and death, but that we have been redeemed and set free. We're new people with a new heart, with a new nature. Jesus' life represented by His blood is of infinitely greater value than any mere metal. Listen to what the Scriptures say to what else the blood of Christ provides. First, the blood of Christ cleans our conscience. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The very fact that you can be a person that is changed, not just in your heart, but in the way that you think, that motivates you in what you do to serve God willingly, is a result of the blood of Christ cleansing our conscience from the old ways, thinking we can try to appease God by what we do. The blood of Christ gains, helps us gain bold access to God in worship and prayer. 
This is Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Right? When you have fellowship with God and you can worship him in spirit and in truth, and you can have those moments and times where you know you may be in a building, you may be on this earth, but there's a way that you can't put together in your mind, but you know you have a standing before a holy God in his presence. Right? You know what those times are like? We call them mountaintop experiences. The sole reason that there is no fear or shame that we stand before a holy God singing his praises even now is because the blood of Christ has been applied to us so that we can enter into the places that even in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go in one time a year. The blood of Christ says, no, all of us can enter every time. The blood of Christ progressively cleans, cleans us from more and more sin. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. We were talking about this um, Wednesday night in the men's huddle. And just this thought that... Um, the blood of Christ gets the tough stains out, right? It's like the best OxyClean there is. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Christ is able to conquer the accuser of the brethren, our enemy, the devil. Revelation 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Our weapon in battle are not things made by human hands, but our weapon in battle is the precious blood of Jesus that was paid for on our account. And finally, in 1 Peter 1.19, we see that we are rescued out of a sinful way of life by the blood of Christ, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Now, Peter is saying what John wrote in John 1, verse 31, that Jesus is the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like, you have to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished just more than our redemption. There's so much that happens when Jesus bled on our behalf. So what does Peter say in verses 20 and 21? Well, this Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This Jesus, who paid such a cost, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And this phrase, before the foundation of the world, is found in other places in Scripture. And every time you read this phrase, before the foundation of the world, just presume, because this is what it means, that it, the authors of Scripture are communicating that God had a predetermined plan. So what does this mean here in First Peter? That Jesus 
long before time began, knew that he had to do what he did. That he had to come to the earth and shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. His coming wasn't a, Houston, we have a problem. What do we do? Some of you don't know what that phrase means. Go watch Apollo 13. This wasn't, you know, an afterthought. Jesus' redemption wasn't catching God off of guard and thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what's plan B? Jesus coming to be Savior was determined before time began. The fall of Adam and Eve didn't take God by surprise. He already knew that, knew what he would do and who would do it. God already knew what he would do and who would do it. Jesus has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. It may have seemed to take a long time from the garden to the cross for Jesus to come. But when he did, he did for us so that through faith we could be considered believers in him. And not only did Jesus redeem us, but there's another purpose in our redemption that Peter reveals. And it's for him. The purpose is for him. And what is that purpose? That God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That Jesus in being raised from the dead and glorified has defeated sin and death and is exalted above all for all eternity. God, whom we fear in family judgment, is also the one in whom we have our faith and hope in. Isn't that strange, right? Because we wouldn't associate terms of pending judgment with I have hope and faith. Like when I was a kid and I did something wrong and my mom would say the dreaded words, when your father gets home. Right? I wasn't looking forward to my dad coming in and saying, oh, exalted father. I sit at your feet and receive whatever you give me. No, I wasn't doing that. But this God who is going to hold us accountable for how we live, he's going to judge our character. He's going to look into our hearts and say, what did you do and why did you do it? This is the one that we have our faith and hope in because we know he leads us to a place that is far better for us. He has given us an inheritance and he has set us free. And so as we consider why we live the way that we are called to live, I pray that you see that you have a God who paid your price so that you can be forgiven and free. And I pray that you see a God who will in this new life hold you accountable for how you live and what you do. But I want to offer you some practical steps. These are nothing new. You're not going to see anything on here and say, oh my gosh, I never knew that. I want to offer you some practical steps for as you seek to live out a life of character before God. First, know the gospel you rest in. Know it. Not just articulate it. Know it in your heart. Where did you come from? What did God do for you? Where are you now? And where are you headed? If you preach the gospel to yourself every day, it'll help you keep yourself from yourself. Right? Pride melts 
in the presence of the gospel. Know the gospel you rest in. Second, be a student of Scripture. Feed from the nourishment of God's Word. If you make God's Word your delight, He will sustain you. Now, there's so much out there competing for our time in God's Word. Now, Pastor Dustin and I were at a conference this week, Monday and Tuesday, and you know, a group of pastors, and we were reminded in different ways throughout the two days that we were together this simple concept, um, Bible before phone. Right, Because how often do we get up and instead of reaching for the resource of life, we reach this. And we say, okay, so what happened in the sports world last night? So we go to ESPN and check the scores. I check Bleacher Report you know, for all the sports news that's coming through. Um, I'll, I'll go through Facebook and say, okay, what happened in the eight hours that I was asleep? Like, that's really important. I'll check Instagram and say, oh, what pictures do people post? And you know what the dangerous thing about social media is today? It's not just the posting of like words about our lives, but it's what, what they call the reels, right? Like the 30 second videos that we just like scroll through and say, oh, that's stupid, but that's interesting. Oh, that means nothing to me, but it's, you know, dogs running around laughing and having fun, you know. It's like all this weird stuff, like, and you know what you find, like, when you're scrolling through things for, like, 30-second snippets? You spend a lot of time doing that. And just think, if you spent as much time in the Word of God as you do on your phone, how different your life would be. And you might say, well, I have my Bible app on my phone. So I have to be on it. Okay. But just think about being a student of Scripture. And you say, yeah, but I can always go to that. Well, then do it. Approach Him. And I'm just as convicted. I can be sitting there and just be like, oh, 20 minutes later, what happened with the time? But I'm all caught up in the world, and I feel really good about that. And yet my heart isn't drawn close, any closer to Christ. The third thing, live a life of confession and repentance. Remind yourself you're not perfect yet. And that's okay. You're in process. You're being sanctified. Own when you fall short. And run to God for healing. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I realize the sinfulness of my sin. But I also know the healing of his forgiveness and grace. And fourth and finally, be accountable to mature believers. Have people in your life that you know seek God's best for you. And and, and let me just say, like when we talk about accountability, you know, if you've been a part of the not just our church, but the church for any length of time, you'll, you'll, hear, you'll hear accountability thrown around a lot and say, yeah, that's good. That's a good virtue. And we all want to be the person that is holding someone accountable. Like, oh, yeah, I'll be there. I'll, I'll ask you the hard questions. I'll walk with you. I'll hold you accountable. You know, it's really hard, though, to be vulnerable enough to say to someone, can you ask me those questions? Can you ask me how I'm doing and speak into my life? You know, Proverbs says, as 
Iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. It helps us to have people in our lives that we have to look at and say, what's going on? How are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? Character matters, church. Who we are when no one is looking matters. Why? Because God is always looking. And we will give an account to Him. Let's pray.